Good morning, everyone. Bob, I didn't know to get up for the gospel was this week. <laughs> I thought it was next week. I, I made all these promises this week. So if I made promises to you, we need to be scheduled because uh, I'm going to be going away. I didn't know we're going away tomorrow either. I thought it was Tuesday. So I'm going to apologize to my wife later. And uh, we're back at Second Timothy, Second Timothy this morning. Someone shared, asked me this question in all sincerity. I mean, the person was serious. Pastor James, uh, what book are we studying again? <laughs> the person had completely forgot what book of the Bible. And uh, I was kind of shamed by that. And completely my fault. Um, pray for me that I'll be diligent in our study of Second Timothy. As we look at the schedule, apart from our short, like, short deviation from our study due to laying the foundation, uh, um, um, purpose, purposes. We hope to uh, stay in Second Timothy um, week after week, uh, as God allows. So, to that end, uh, if you'd open your Bibles to Second Timothy chapter one, and um, I had to really look it up to find out where we actually left off. So I, I doubt many of you remember what verse we left off. So we're going to do a little bit of review and preview. Review our past studies. And then preview our studies that are to come to get our bearings set. And then we'll study uh, verse 8 uh, with the rest of the time we have this morning. But to uh, set ourselves in the context of this book, we'll, let's read together uh, verses 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as if my ancestors with a clear conscience. As I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying out of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear but of power and love and self-control. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through an appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and, death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. But the Holy Spirit who dwells within us guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Now verses 1 and 2 is Paul's common greeting to his son of the faith, Timothy. Verse 3 is the start of this epistle. And the first word we find is the word gratitude, thanksgiving. We are shocked to find that the Apostle Paul, the aged Apostle, who is imprisoned in a dungeon, awaiting execution, treated as a common criminal, he's writing to his son of the faith, an intimate letter, pouring out his heart, and there is no complaint. There is no doubt, there is no bitterness or anger, though he has many reasons for these things. He begins by saying, I am thankful. I thank God whom I serve. I'm in chains, I've been beaten, mistreated. I'm shamed, humiliated here. But Timothy, I want you to know, I thank God whom I serve. Now it's humbling for us to read this because... We are so prone to discontentment or ingratitude or to be full of complaining and whining at minor inconveniences in our lives. 
Here is Paul, though, uh, threatened with, uh, by the Roman government to be beheaded, to, uh, to take away his life, and yet he is thankful to God. How was this possible? How was Paul able to maintain this uh, contented heart in the midst of such horrible circumstances? We studied how he employed uh, means of God given by the scriptures. Means of grace. He employed three methods, three secondary agencies, three ordinary ways ordained by God by which believers can receive spiritual help from God. And he recounts them in the subsequent verses. Verse 3, we find the first means of grace Paul employed to receive spiritual help, whereby his heart was content. Verse 3, As I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. While in prison, his eyes were not on on himself. His eyes were not on his chains. His eyes were not fixed on his uh, prisoners, the guards, the, the... the injustice of the rulers, the leaders of Rome. His eyes were not on those who abandoned him. Uh, fellow believers who out of their cowardice uh, abandoned him and forsook him in the, in, the, in the prison. No, his eyes were on fellow believers and committed to intercessory prayer. He was not praying for self, but praying for others. Praying for them, for their souls, their welfare, their needs. And he received in this way much encouragement, comfort, and grace. And that's a true means of grace ordained by the scriptures. You think you have a tough life, tough week, tough circumstances. At that moment, commit to praying for fellow believers. Pray for your parents. Pray for your siblings. Pray for your flock shepherd, your Bible study leader, your fellow small group member. Pray for your pastor. I Pray for fellow, pray for missionaries, and you'll find so much grace, so much strength available to you simply by turning your attention away from yourself and to others. And I'll tell you, this is so much easier said than done. And, and, uh, I'm finding this out personally. We, we look at this, wow, that's good, good, good of Paul. That's really neat that Paul could do this. It's amazing that Paul could do this. You try this and you'll discover how difficult this is. But once you commit to it, you'll find how much grace there is in store for those who would take their eyes off of self and pray for others. Second means of grace employed by Paul is verse 4. It's found in verse 4. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. As he prays for Timothy, as he remembers Timothy, he remembers something specific about the last time they met, when they departed. Paul remembered Timothy's tears. Tears that Timothy shed when they departed. Now, I've had a lot of partings in my life, but to this day, I've never cried at partings. Right? Never. Right? When Dale and Joan, they're here somewhere, right? Where are you guys? When you guys left for check, I didn't cry, right? No tears, right? And when we left you behind in check, no tears, right? And when we sent away Joan and Lane to check, no tears. In fact, maybe happiness. <laughs> like gratitude, yes, right? Never. But, I don't know, big but, but, but if, if I thought, if I, if I believed it was the last time that I would ever see Joan and Dale again, the last time I would see Joe and Elaine. Ah, the love that's in our hearts. I could see us right, shedding tears because of our common bond in Christ and because of our mutual love for one another. That is exactly what Paul experienced with the elders at Ephesus. Remember Acts 20? He was going all over the place, preaching the gospel to Jews, Jewish people and Gentiles. And along the way, the Jewish leaders are following him, persecuting him following him, undermining his message. Every time he planted a church, they would trail along behind him to undermine and attack Paul's doctrine and character, to 
lead uh, believers away. Paul got tired of running. He said, I'm going to go to the heart of Judaism and go to Jerusalem. Go back to the capital city of Israel and proclaim Christ's gospel there. I'm tired of running. And I am ready to give my life for the cause of Christ. And the elders of Ephesus met with him on his way and pled with him, Paul, do you not know they're searching for you to kill you? Their, their hearts are inflamed with anger and murderers in their hearts. They get their hands on you. Your life will be over. And Paul said, what are you talking about? I, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. I am resolved to go to Jerusalem. And if it's the end of my life, so be it. And what did the elders of Ephesus do? They, they cried. They wept. Paul wept as well. In their last, when they last parted, Paul perhaps knew, and Timothy perhaps knew, this might be the last time they would see each other on this side of eternity. So here is Paul in prison praying for Timothy, and he remembers Paul. Paul remembers Timothy. What does he remember? He remembers Timothy's tears. He considers all oh, men like Demas who ran away. How when in his first trial there was no one there to stand by him. He's all alone. All alone. Nobody cares for him. He remembers Timothy's love. Personal love for him. And second means of grace. Right? It is not good for a man to be alone. Right? We're social beings. As Christians, God saved us not to be individuals, lone rangers pursuing Christ, but to be part of a local church. To experience this means of grace. And to benefit from this, from this means of grace. Because it strengthens and comforts us so much to know that there is a believer that cares for us personally, individually, specifically. And it's not their job. It's not their ministry. Right? It's not, they're not doing missions work on you. right? They truly care for you. They love you. They are concern for your welfare personally, practically, spiritually and you know there's mutual love means of great grace especially in times of uh, temptation and, and trial this alone can sustain a believer through it all that's why it is so sad when when a believer has no one who cares for them when a believer is alone It's doubly sad when a leader is all alone, when a spiritual leader has no one, loves them. Paul, he didn't care, hated by the world, hated by Rome. He was thinking about Timothy. He knew his son of the faith loved him. Third means of grace is 2 Timothy 1, verse 5, are reminded of your sincere faith, which was with Lois, your grandmother, your mom, Eunice, and now resides in you as well. Third means of God's grace is Timothy's sincere faith. The sincere faith of fellow believers is a source of immeasurable joy and strength. Is it not? We talked about this in a whole sermon, how hypocrisy so discourages us. When When we see duplicity, insincerity, or hypocrisy in a believer, maybe in a leader, man, that wounds our faith. That causes us to stumble. That makes every step that much more difficult in our pursuit of Christ. That is true. And so the converse is all the more true. When we see firsthand genuine obedience and see our faith, first love for Christ, that puts wind in our sails. That gives us so much strength and power to go on. And I experienced this a few weeks ago. I had the opportunity to sit in the church and just not do anything on Sunday and just sit and sing and pray and listen to God's Word. And um, I came a little late with my family. I won't name the child that was at fault, but one out of four, you can. it's always one of the... Anyway, <laughs> it's always the same one. But we're sitting in the back, and it was such a joy to sit, to sit with the church I'm not going to mention names because, you know, that's not right. But just sit there and sing and observe. Many of you um, who I know are going through difficulties and challenges, have uh, disappointments in life. Uh, You could easily run away. You could easily quit. You could easily blame others or blame God. 
and yet you're, you're, you're standing and worshiping, you're sitting and listening, and your heart is endeavoring to have true faith in Christ and obey. Oh, that's such an encouragement to each believer. And that's how we spur one another in Christ. We stand alone together. When we stand for Christ, then we stand together. Faith and obedience of other believers inspire me to all the more fight against my own hypocrisy and to fight for sincere faith in my own life. Paul employed these three means of grace and he received so much grace, so much strength, so much comfort. And then now he turns to Timothy to give him grace. He remembers these things and so he reminds Timothy that he is a steward of the sincere faith given to him by God. And above all, Timothy, you must not waste it, must not neglect his ministry, verses 6 and 7. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying out of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Verse 6 and 7 is very important that we are mindful that this is an ancient letter written between Paul and Timothy and is not written directly to us. That, that the direct meaning is for Timothy. The applic- there's applications for us. Timeless principles that are universal. But the specific meaning is for Paul to Timothy. We're not to just mindlessly apply this text to us. Timothy was unique. Paul was unique. And Timothy was also unique. Through laying on of Paul's hands, Paul granted to him through God. God through Paul granted him this charisma of God, this gift of God, this grace of God. It is a special grace that God has given to Timothy. He was the apostle, small, lowercase a, of the capital A, apostle. Paul was the apostle of Christ. Timothy, by receiving this gift, was the apostle, emissary, ambassador of the apostle Paul. Each local church has autonomy. We studied that last week in Matthew 18. You tell the church, you tell the elders, and it stops there. There is no hierarchy of churches. Each church stands alone and Christ as the head of the local church. But during this early church time, in this transitional time, when the scriptures were still being written, the canon was being completed, there, were, there was a need of special... Um, work of the apostles and their emissaries to give oversight of the church. So Paul exercised oversight over many local churches and as, as an apostle of Christ. He granted the same authority to Timothy to have authority and give oversight to other churches as well. Timothy, therefore, was an official delegate of the apostle. He was ordained and affirmed by Paul to represent Paul the Apostle in an official capacity to ordain elders. It was Timothy's job. Titus as well. To establish the affairs of the church. To correct and confront error. And to set in order right practice. Dean Alford is right to say, that the spiritual gift here is that of teaching and ruling the church. It was given by Paul to Timothy and Timothy to no one else. It ended with Timothy. For us to have authority in leading God's church is through the word of God, not through some special person laying hands on us, but through God's word, by knowledge, obedience, and submitting to it in our ministry. Along with this gift, Timothy was given a new spirit, a, a renewed inner man. He had um, a weaker disposition. He was prone to timidity, shrinking back, kind of a self-doubting young man. But through this gift, his inner man was no longer captive to fear, but he was possessed by the spirit 
of power and love and self-control. Paul is reminding him, Timothy, cowardice was the characteristic of the old man. Now, Timothy, you have power. You have dunamis to endure. You have agape. You have the power to love, love God and love others. And you have sofrano, self-control, sober judgment. Paul granted these things. God granted these things to Timothy through Paul. Timothy possessed these things. Just a matter of Timothy practicing it, abiding by it, ministering according to it, according to his new inner man. Now, application for us is how do we um, mortify fear of man? How do we deal a death blow of cowardice, anxiety, lack of faith? How do we experience? How do we endure? How do we, how can we have this power of the Holy Spirit to love God and love others and have wisdom to understand the various issues of life, the complex, multifaceted issues of life and ministry and make wise decisions according to the Word of God? We do it by walking in the Spirit, by living according to the Holy Scriptures which were inspired by the Holy Spirit. By living, walking, by being filled with the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.22 But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We have power, love, and self-control not by some ecstatic experience, not some spiritual anointing or some, again, special person laying their hands on us and, and, and endowing us with some special abilities. No. New Testament believers, for us, the church age believers, we bear these fruits by being filled with the Spirit, by obeying the Scriptures, by following God's Word. Paul employed these means of grace, 1 through 5. He reminds Timothy 6 and 7. And then from verse 8 on to the rest of the chapter, Paul gives Five commands. Five commands. It is all predicated upon verse uh, 7. Because, Timothy, God has given you a spirit of power, love, and self-control. Therefore, Paul commands Timothy these five commands. First one, this is a preview of what is to come. In the weeks and months to come, we'll go over these commands one by one. Command one, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. That shame is produced by cowardice and fear. Do not be ashamed. Command two, do not be ashamed of me as prisoner. Don't be ashamed of me. Command three, instead of being ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, and instead of being ashamed of Paul, Christ's prisoner, instead, share in suffering for the gospel along with Paul. Join with me, Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, in suffering for the gospel, to counter shame, and to give uh, this command uh, more power, more strength, more emphasis. He articulates the gospel to give it that force. Verses 9 and 10. And it's all about God's sovereignty, undeserved sovereignty over our salvation, over our ministry. Timothy, don't be ashamed of the gospel because God chose you undeservedly. He saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works. We, did, we had no choice in this matter. It was, not, it was not our goodness, our righteousness. It was God's sovereign choice to save us. Therefore, don't be ashamed of the gospel And Timothy, don't be ashamed of me because I'm a herald, I'm an apostle, I'm a minister, not because I chose this. Verse 11, I was appointed a preacher, appointed apostle, appointed a teacher. Don't blame me. It was God's sovereign hand. Therefore, don't be ashamed. Like these other men, they were ashamed of me. They blamed me for my ministry. Timothy, understand, this is all in the sovereignty of God. Then verse 12, that is why Paul says, I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed because I believe in God's sovereignty. I am confident 
that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. God's will will be done. In commands 4 and 5, he expounds on what it means to not be ashamed of Paul. Command 4 is, follow the pattern of sound words of Paul. What does it mean, Timothy, for you not to be ashamed of me? Imitate my ministry. And what's happening today of so many who are going away from the word of God, they're saying they're ashamed of Christ, they're ashamed of the gospel, they're ashamed of Paul. If their boast wasn't Christ, wasn't the gospel, wasn't Paul, they would imitate every point. Paul's conduct in his ministry, his preaching, his philosophy of serving the Lord. But by them abandoning Paul's pattern of sound words, they're disavowing Paul altogether. Paul's telling Timothy, don't do that. Don't create your own way of doing ministry. And then finally, guard the deposit entrusted to him. Verse 14. Guard the good deposit. Guard the gospel. Guard right doctrine. Guard right life. And then, to conclude the chapter, Paul gives some examples. He brings up two men, Phygelus and Hermogenes. He talks about how all in Asia turned away from him because they were ashamed of Paul. And he notes two men by name. Now, we don't know. I mean, when we get there, I'll do a, maybe a deeper study and we'll find out. But right now, I don't know why these men are... are, are worthy of noting by name in, in, this, in this book, most likely Timothy knew these men. Right? And they were leaders in the church. They were respected men, were known for their spiritual leadership. And so Paul didn't necessarily count on the church right, to back him up. Maybe he counted on um, Phygelus and Hermogenes to be there with him. But here's examples of men who turned away from me and who are ashamed of me. Now, verse 16 through 18, he concludes with an example of one man, Onesiphorus, who was not ashamed. So that's God's grace, right? Just like Elijah, he thought he was alone, and God said, Don't worry, you're not alone. I'm not leaving my people alone. There are others who have not bowed down to the feet of the idol of Baal. You'll find them, and they'll strengthen you. Paul was not left utterly alone. There was a man named Onesiphorus. He will often refresh me, verse 16, and he was not ashamed of my chains. When he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly, and he found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. He sets himself out. He marks him out and says, I thank God for this man because he was not ashamed of me. That is our big picture map. Brief review, brief preview of what is to come. We find ourselves almost right in the middle in verse 8. Now if you remember all the way back to January 27th, we concluded a three-part study on shame. Shame. We did this because this is so crucial to understanding the rest of the chapter. A misunderstanding of shame will leave us uh, confused and um, we'll miss out on the significance of the commands that follow verses 8 through uh, 17. Only a right understanding of shame will enable us to fully comprehend Paul's words to Timothy. Just a brief review on shame again. We found, we found that um, Middle East culture in the first century was a, very, it was a culture that was very sensitive to shame a shame-sensitive culture. Much like the Asian culture today, it was a bragging culture, sensitive to honor and also shame. We find that referenced throughout the Old Testament. Uh, the writer of Psalms prays again and again, may, not, may, may I not be ashamed before my enemies. May my enemies be ashamed. May they become red-faced. May they become humiliated. May I be vindicated in the sight of my enemies. That state, those statements, those ideas are repeated throughout because 
honor and shame was so important. And to this day, in many cultures, especially in Asians, porn today. It was made all the more difficult because the cross was the most shameful, degrading way to die. It was the most degrading form of, in, of execution. So in this shame-sensitive culture, to preach that our God hung on the cross was absurd. It was mockery. It was laughable. It was ludicrous. It, it made absolutely no sense. The cross, they well knew, was a horrific form of capital punishment. A repugnant, demeaning form of execution. So degrading that Roman citizens were exempt from crucifixion except if they committed treason. The authorities reserved the cross only for rebellious slaves and conquered people, for notorious robbers, assassins. The Romans reserved it only for the scum, the most humiliated, the lowest of the lows. And added to that, for the Jewish people, the cross represented a greater shame because there was a divine curse attached to it. Based on Galatians 3.13, the Jewish people believed, cursed is the man who hangs in a tree. You're crucified on the cross. You're hanging on the tree. That means you are so, you have so incurred the wrath of God, you do not deserve to, to die on the earth. You have to be separated from God's creation to die. So you are cursed by God. Divine wrath has been poured out on you. It was a social stigma beyond disgrace. It went all the way to divine condemnation. And that's why it was so difficult to become a Christian, especially from the Jewish culture. Because the central testimony about our Lord was that He was crucified. Shame of the testimony of the cross could not be overlooked. It was shame upon shame. And they had uh, seeker-sensitive preachers then. They had those who were ashamed. They were culturally sensitive, so they tried to gloss over the offensive parts. They tried to uh, smooth out the rough edges of the gospel, the offensive parts, and make it more palatable to their shame-sensitive culture, and kind of minimize, I don't know how you would do that, but minimize the cross for the sake of evangelism. Paul here is begging Timothy, don't do that, Timothy. Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. John MacArthur said this, Pastor MacArthur, in the first century, the Apostle Paul ministered in a shame-sensitive, honor-seeking culture, shamelessly preaching a shameful message about a publicly shamed person. And so the message was offensive. It was scandalous. It was stupid. It was foolish. It was moronic. Paul understood this. But that's why he was suffering. That's why he was in prison. Because of the gospel. If it wasn't for the gospel, he would not be in prison. So he begs Timothy to not be ashamed. We need to uh, look at this uh, emotion of shame a little longer to again fully understand the rest of this chapter. I think all of us, to at least... Uh, a basic degree, understand this emotion of shame and acknowledge that it is a powerful emotion, that it is it has power to paralyze us, ensnare us, that it is a cruel taskmaster. And if it is allowed, if we allow it, it will overwhelm and control our minds, our hearts, control our lives. I feel like I've been studying shame for the last three, four months. That's all I've been doing, reading books on shame, articles on shame. Googling shame, Googling shame in the Bible, shame in Jesus and cross, and shame everywhere, right? A lot of bad stuff out there, right? A lot of psychology out there. I came upon an internet uh, forum, like wisdom.org or something, right? I don't go to it all the time. I just you know, happened to come upon it. And the question was this. Do you think there is not enough shame in the world? Do you think there is not enough shame in the world? The first response was this, and the person nailed it. The first response was, 
There is too much misplaced shame and not enough where it has been earned. There is too much misplaced shame and not enough where it has been earned. Right? That gives us insight into shame. And it's consistent with what the Bible teaches. There are, that, there, that there are two kinds of shame. Well-placed, well-earned, well-deserved shame. And misplaced, unwarranted, undeserved shame. Well-placed and misplaced. This is one of the first things that jumps right out at us. That there are some shame that is justified and some that isn't. There are some situations where shame is exactly what we should feel. And there are some situations we feel shame and we shouldn't. We shouldn't at all. This exists in the Bible, but also apart from the Bible, apart from God. Just in life, apart from Scripture, we see and experience this firsthand. I saw this firsthand in my own family. Um, you know, love my dad. He passed away a year and a half ago. And, uh, you know, love him with all my heart. It, growing up, um, you know, we, we didn't talk too much. and he never, We never had this father-son talk when I was growing up. We had that talk when I was like 35. A little late, like 20, 25 years earlier would help me a, a lot more. But, you know, better late than never, I guess. But we never had these talks about what it means, like what Sophie was teaching about raising a boy to become a man, what it means to be a man, how to live in this world, this mean and nasty place, and maintain integrity and, and just good reputation, all those things, right? Though he didn't say it in many words, I saw him um, live it out in his own life, especially in his latter years of his life. Again, we were in an Asian culture, bragging culture, honor-shame culture. And he lived out that a man doesn't conform to his culture. He stands in his own convictions, that he fights misplaced shame, and he pursues right shame. I saw this in two examples in his life in the latter years. Uh, my, my parents uh, filed for bankruptcy in uh, 96, 97. We lost everything. My dad, you know... Businessman, he was, did, did well for a while. Drove a Cadillac. Had like several uh, memberships to golf cl- country clubs, and he played golf like a, incredible like uh, expense. We lost everything, and uh, I remember uh, you know they they took away you know the, the eviction notice came with the move out, selling everything, and for a while he couldn't find a job. How did you know a 40, 50 year old Korean man you know find a job here? And so it was down to, he was down to driving a truck for $50 a day. So like U-Haul trucks from like here to like Santa Barbara, from Santa Barbara to Palm Springs, you know, both ways, and he would make $50 a day. And he would share that with, 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 with uh, my mom and share that with us, with his friends. And there was, there was no sense of shame. There was no sense of embarrassment or humiliation. When I saw that, and I respected him for that. Because it's not... How much you make, that's, that, that's the issue. It's you work hard. And as a man, as a husband, as a father, you do what you can to provide for the family. Wow, that's putting aside misplaced shame and this kind of wrong kind of pride where I'm above that kind of job. And to really have a right kind of sense of responsibility and working hard with your own hands. A few years later, um, my dad incurred this uh, uh, autoimmune uh, disease or virus where... His skin was attacked, and his, his immune system started attacking the healthy cells in his body. So his face was scarred, and there were times where literally his whole face was just a big scar. Like, skin would just literally peel off his, off his face. And it was difficult for me to see him, you know, my mom to see him, for our family. But my dad, he would go out and eat at restaurants, right? He would walk in, and they're like, what's going on? They would put him in a corner stall and like feed him with a long like pole, you know. And he would say, oh, it's not contagious. But they're like, it looks like it is. And, and he would like, go to work and he would, you know, just do everything. And we would go out eat at restaurants and people would stare and look. And kids would like, get scared and maybe run away. And my dad, and 
There's no shame in getting sick. That's not his fault. There's no moral responsibility for illness. And so for us, we weren't ashamed of him at all. We were proud. We were, we were honoring him for his conviction to, to be firm, to be a man, and not to uh, tempted to uh, fear of man. Right? On the other side, though, he also acknowledged well-earned shame. He, I'm not trying to venerate my dad, please, you know. After service, I'll tell you all about his sinful side, you know, <laughs> and go on and on. I'm not venerating my dad, but just in these two, three points, he did okay. Um, you know, he became a Christian, and one day we were having dinner, and he, would, he sat, sat us down. He started talking about our, our, how we grew up, and he started confessing how he felt regret on how he wasn't there for us, didn't raise us right, and he was shamed by his poor parenting. And my response was, Dad, you, you fed me, you clothed me, you gave me shelter. You're a great dad, right? That's God's sovereign. God made you my dad. It's fine. My heart, though, for you to think, look back and say, I didn't honor God's word. I wasn't obeying scripture. I didn't fulfill my role. I'm ashamed. I regret. That's good. That's right. Because that is deserved shame right he didn't care what people thought but he cared what he thought and what god thought the bible tells us the exact same thing right that we need to fight misplaced shame and we need to fight for well placed well deserved shame We ought to feel shame when we have a hand in bringing dishonor upon God by our attitudes or actions. We want to be clear at this distinction. Let's go to the scriptures and look at some examples of both kinds of shame. 1 Corinthians, if you would turn with me, 1 Corinthians 6, 5 through 8. The Corinthian church had all sorts of problems. And Paul employed shame in his ministry. And uh, and we'll kind of talk about this in the application. We don't shame non-believers. We don't want behavior modification. We don't want to cut away at their fruit. We want transformation. So we don't shame non-believers. But for believers to shame one another, it's wholly biblical. Well-deserved shame. Verse 5, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers, you're suing each other, and you're going to uh, outside the church for a non-believer to settle your disputes. To have lawsuits at all, verse 7, with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers, and that is shameful. Let's not miss this implication. These people were trying their best to appear strong and right. They wanted to be vindicated by men. They wanted to be winners in court. They were fighting for their own honor, and in doing so, God was dishonored. Therefore, Paul shames them, because they have shame before God, before Christ, and before Christ's church. When we are dishonoring God, and we feel shame, That's the right feeling. That's the right emotion. If you don't feel shame, something is wrong. To feel shame, it is wholly right. No matter how right we are in our own eyes, it is right. Go to 1 Corinthians 15, 34. Paul shames them again. Paul shames them again. 15, 34. Wake up from your drunken stupor. As is right, do not go on sinning. 
where some have no knowledge of God, I say this to your shame. I shame you again because of their deplorable ignorance of God within the church. They're ignorant of who God is and therefore they were living in sin. They're mired in disobedience and rebellion in the church. No excuse. Therefore, shame belongs to them. You don't need to turn here, but Ezekiel 43.10. It's another passage that talks about shame. As for you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel the temple that they may be ashamed of their iniquities. God, it's, God said Israel ought to feel shame for their sins. God rightly shames them for their disobedience. This is well-placed shame. Paul, Second uh, Thessalonians three fourteen and fifteen. Paul, in fact, encourages believers uh, to practice this in the church. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, verse fourteen, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Because you care, out of love, out of a compassionate heart, you warn that brother that he might be ashamed. He doesn't feel the shame, but he might be put to shame so that he might repent and obey the scriptures. These are all examples in the Bible of well-deserved, well-placed shame. The other side of the coin is misplaced shame. Misplaced shame. And as Christians, I think we all, far too often, get the concept of shame all wrong here. We have it backwards. We honor that which is shameful and turn that which is honorable into shame. What is shameful, we honor. And what we should be honorable, we feel shame. We find ourselves ashamed of the godly aspects of our lives and proud of the ungodly aspects of our lives. A few areas. First is in the area of suffering for Christ. Suffering for Christ. Turn to 1 Peter 4, 14. Peter, speaking inspired by the Holy Scriptures, having experienced insult and suffering firsthand, writes this, 1 Peter 4.14, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. You are blessed. Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 1 Peter 4.16, two verses down, If anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. As a Christian, the name of Christian, let him glorify God that he is suffering as a Christian. Let him not be ashamed. Suffering and being reproached and made fun of as a Christian is not an occasion for shame. It is an occasion for praising God, to glorify God. If suffering produces shame in our hearts, that means we have a man-centered approach to our Christian lives. If it's God-centered, when we are when we are persecuted, insulted, that's a source of honor for us. That's why I believe you go out witnessing. You, it's a, you can't lose situation. You witness to someone, you share the gospel. It's a win-win. If they get on their knees and weep and cling to your clothes and repent and trust in Christ, that's a good day of witnessing, right? That's a win situation. If they hate you, revile you, insult you, say all manners of evil against you, that's win as well, right? Because you are blessed. Because you're suffering as a Christian. You're considered worthy to to suffer for the name of Christ. And you have the fellowship of suffering with Christ. You experience at that moment... This is what Christ experienced. 
This hurts. And how much more must have hurt Christ? I understand a little better the Gospels. And this is what Paul experienced. This is what Peter experienced. Well, I have fellowship with these men through my sufferings. I have a better understanding of the Scriptures for it now. It's, it's win-win. Acts 5.41, after the apostles were beat up right, with rods 39 times, they came away rejoicing. Right? So if, you, if you're persecuted for Christ, you go away just singing praise songs to God. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. Therefore, shame for believers is a badge of honor. Right? We should share that with one another. We share war stories with one another. We share these stories. Man, I just got pummeled today. Right? Man, my coworker outright, you know, cursed at me. Right? They taught me all kinds of names. Wow, no one would even give me an open ear. We share these war stories and each other, you know, high fives, right? And rejoice together for God honoring us in this way. Secondly, shame is misplaced when it is connected to the gospel. When it is connected to the gospel. In any shape or form, we are shamed in relationship to the gospel. It is misplaced. It is wholly wrong. We know this, these verses, right? Romans 1, 16 and 17. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Why, Paul? How can you not be ashamed of the gospel? It's about your God dying on the cross. Right? Executed in the most cruel form of punishment. It is absurdity, moronic, stupid, foolish. How can you not be ashamed? Everybody's ashamed for you. And Paul said, I'm not ashamed because it is the power of God for salvation. Because I know the truth. That this message saves, forgives sins, redeems, secures heaven for you. Therefore, I am not ashamed. You might shame me, but in my heart, I know the truth. And I know one day I'll be vindicated. will stand before the judgment throne of God. And God will declare that the gospel was truth. And I know that is true. Therefore, I have no shame in my heart. That's exactly what Christ did in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Right? He endured the shame of the cross, despising its shame for the joy set before him. What is that joy? Because Christ, though he was persecuted, he was, he was tortured, crucified, he knew that the shame of the cross was not the end. It was a means to greater glory before God. And his death on the cross will result in the salvation of countless people, countless souls being saved by God. Therefore, knowing this truth buffeted his heart and enabled him with joy in his heart, suffer shame and not feel shame. That is misplaced shame. In any way, we're ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. The inner man, our internal monologue, must be, we boast, right? we glory, we love the gospel, we love the cross, because we know its effect, we know its ultimate result. It saves people who believe. Right? It saves them. It does that which is impossible with man. What can man do to receive forgiveness of sin? What can man do to stand right before a holy and just God? With all our sins, numbering more than hairs on our head, what can we do? We can do nothing. It is impossible for us to be saved. But the gospel accomplishes that which is impossible for man. The salvation of our soul. So with that conviction, we are not ashamed of the gospel. And we proclaim the gospel. We hold it high. John Piper said, Only one message saves sinners. Only one message brings them safely into the presence of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ. It alone is the power of God unto salvation. Therefore, Paul would say, and Jesus himself would say, Suffer? Yes. Misunderstood? Yes. Be shamed? Yes but not ashamed. 
but not ashamed. Because the message of God's saving work in Christ is the only final triumphant message in the world. It is short-term pain, but long-term gain. Third and final reason why we must mortify misplaced shame as it relates to God, Christ, and the gospel. I mean, this is serious. And at this point, I am not, I don't have the, I don't have the maturity, so, soberness, the gravity to preach it as I ought. With every gravity I can muster up, I implore you. And I, I emphasize the seriousness of, of this command because of what the Bible says. We must not take this following point lightly. Christ takes this shame personally. We misplace our shame to the cross of Christ and to Christ himself. And he does not take that lightly. This is as serious as you can get. You are ashamed of Christ and his words. It is a great offense, dishonoring to God. And our Lord takes it personally. Mark 8, 34 through 38. Mark 8, 34 through 38. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does a profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his life? What can a man give in return for his life? And here is verse 38. It ought to thunder in your hearts. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Right? In this shameless world, in this sinful, degenerate world, where they boast of their sins and they flaunted, and you're ashamed of me, then I promise that when I come in my kingdom with all my glory and all my angels, I will be ashamed of you. I'll return that shame. Matthew 10, 32 and 33 Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Misplaced shame is not a minor issue. Misplaced shame, when it is related to the cross, means there is cancer in our hearts. There is something deadly in our souls. And we need to deal with it. We need to not live with it. We need to mortify it. We need to do away with it once and for all. A few final thoughts to close our time. Kill misplaced shame. That is related to the gospel by the word of God. Kill it by the gospel. Right? The gospel tells us other things, these other things do not matter. Your family background, your ethnicity does not matter. Your height, your weight, your financial situation does not, to be ashamed of those things is absurd. It's foolishness. Right? Your physical health, you know, you've been hurt by others, emotionally, physically, whatever. Those things do not matter. If you have shame associated with those things, it's misplaced shame. But the gospel tells us, if you are ashamed by the gospel, you need to mortify it. It's misplaced shame that is an affront to God, offense to His holy nature. If we are in any way ashamed, of the Bible's teaching on God's sovereignty, on God's holy character. In any, any way, we are ashamed of the doctrine of the, of the definite depravity of man, of unconditional election, that God is in, in, uh, sovereign over salvation. We're in any way ashamed of, of 
exclusivity of salvation by the gospel alone, that there's no other way by which men can be saved except the name of Christ, if we're in any way ashamed that we're saved by faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone, that is misplaced shame. Right? That is an affront to God anyway. We, we're ashamed of eternal security, the preservation of saints, of eternity in heaven and eternity in hell. Right? We need to deal with it cruelly, immediately, strongly. Kill it or it will be killing you. Right? Be killing sin or it's going to be killing you. We must kill misplaced shame as it relates to the gospel or it will be killing you. Secondly, feed and nurture well-placed shame. Right? Feed and nurture well-placed shame. Like shame, ha- shame has vanished from our culture. It shouldn't. It's right. Shame shouldn't vanish from our hearts when it's well-earned and in our families and in our church. Right? If it's well-deserved, we should strive after it. We should be sensitive to well-placed shame. Sensitive to God's honor and my honor in Christ. That's what I'm striving after. I want to be sensitive to things that are shameful in my life. Because I don't want to be ashamed before God and before my family, before the church, before the world. I want to be sensitive I want to be sensitive to God's honor. Be offended when God's honor is diminished. And also my honor in Christ. Greg Coco, uh, president of Stand to Reason, wrote this. and I'll just read it to you. It says it so well, I can't say it any better. I think it would be great if one phrase was restored to the language of our moral discourse. It would be great if we would have the moral fortitude to say with conviction, shame on you. You ought to be shamed of yourself. It feels kind of awkward even to say that. It sounds so rude. Of course, this cuts against the grain of the cult of self-love and self-esteem, which exists not only in our culture, but even in the church. Many in the church view we shouldn't be motivated by shame. One pastor says that shame, quote, only produces a negative stigma that cannot have any redemptive quality at all. Poker responded by saying, I, don't, I just don't get a comment like that coming from a pastor. To me, that's kind of saying diagnosing a disease does absolutely no good towards encouraging a person to seek medical help. In order to redeem a bad condition to some better condition, you must acknowledge the bad condition you need redemption from. So shame can be very redemptive. If you realize you've got a problem, you are going to seek a solution. So we should be probing our own hearts. If it's well-deserved, embrace that shame. And also, the people that we love, right? we ought to speak about what's right and wrong, what is truth and error. And if they have well-deserved shame, out of love for them, speak to them in Christ right? for the sake of the honor of God, His gospel and His truth. Two more, we'll cover this next, next week. Instead of being ashamed of the gospel, voluntarily suffer for the gospel. It must be our individual choice. Paul commands Timothy, join with me. Timothy, you join. Right, it's not a draft. It's a voluntary right, assignment. Join with me in suffering for the gospel, each of us. Right, the way to counter shame is not by standing idly by. Right? Not by being immobile. But aggressively suffering for the gospel. That counters shame in our hearts. And then finally, and we'll cover this next week, do not be ashamed of those who are suffering for the gospel. Instead, honor them. Instead, honor them. And when I was a youth group student, I think it was, I was 10th grade, and my mom forced me to go to church, and I met my youth pastor. 
And he was a guy like 30-something years old, single, student at Talbot, youth pastor of like 20 kids. My thought, I vividly remember, was what a loser, right? Man, what, what a loser, right? And that's, that's the view of the world towards pastors and towards missionaries. Right? What losers, right? They, they have nothing else better to do. They couldn't make it in the real world. Right? They have no skills or abilities. Right? And so they're just like leftovers. They serve the church or serve missions. That's the view of the world. As Christians, we don't conform to that mindset. We're not ashamed of those who suffer for Christ, who are in the vanguard position of, of ministry and, and suffering for Christ. No, our response is to respect honor them. Let's pray and close our time.